in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. In your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Welcome back to another podcast of It's Not Just in Your Head with Harriet Fraud and Max Golding. We want to remind the therapeutic community that although what's in your head and in your own little world is relevant, it is not the whole story. Today, we're going to talk about the tale of four depressions that are swooping down on our poor population in America. And by poor, I mean sad. One is a depression that's been with us since the mid to late 1970s, which had two aspects. All of these are tales of two depressions simultaneously because the emotional depression goes hand in hand with the economic and social depression. So the first depression that happened to us in recent history since the mid to late 70s was caused by millions and millions of mainly male jobs that were well-paid in the manufacturing sector being outsourced to countries with low wages and poor working conditions, places like India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh. And unlike the Germans, who are the most prosperous country in Europe, we did nothing. We didn't have the kind of powerful unions they have that banned outsourcing as they do in Sweden and other successful economies. And so our people were mainly denied and decimated. And those millions of people were mainly male because the old America before the 1970s, the late 70s, was an overwhelmingly white nation, about 80, 85% white. And if you were in a family headed by a white male, you really could do well. And each generation could even do better than the last one because white males had won through union struggle, white male wages, didn't call them white male wages, they called them male wages, but minorities never got these wages. Mm. But on those wages, you could support a dependent wife as a kind of full-time servant and sex partner in the household and dependent children. Well, once they exported the jobs, the millions of them, and computerized and mechanized and robotized them all for more profit, these men lost their jobs, which were a big part of their male identity. I can support a family. I am a real man. And that's why for minorities, manhood was much more in question because black men and Hispanic men really couldn't support their families with the wages that they got in the United States. And women couldn't support our families in the wages that we got then, only 59 cents on the male dollar, or what we get now, which is 80, at the most 82% of the male dollar for full-time jobs and about 45 cents on the male dollar for part-time jobs. At any rate, when those millions of men lost their jobs, in order to survive, Americans turned partly to credit to keep up their standard of living, which is why the credit card companies were outrageously overused and Americans were drowning in credit. But also, more importantly, they sent their wives to work. Women had to work because two people had to work to earn actually less buying power than one white man used to earn. 
Well, once women had to work in the labor force, mainly full-time, home life changed. Men were used to a full-time servant taking care of their emotional and sexual and domestic needs, as well as bearing children. Women were used to being economically protected in the home as they took care of men. But since they were having to work, women were having to work outside the home, they were unwilling to do what Arlie Hochschild calls a full second shift when they got home. They wanted, as they were participating in the finances in the household, they wanted men to participate in the housework and childcare. That didn't go over very well. There was in because men already felt unmanned by having their jobs decreased in salary and outsourced and mechanized, computerized, robotized. And it was an act of demeaning for them to be asked to do housework as well, because housework was demeaned as the low-ranked work of women. And it still is. Menial labor is still demeaned, no matter how important it is to our health and safety. For example, the janitor in a hospital is crucial for the health of the people in the hospital, but he gets a nail-pairing worth of the salary that the surgeon gets who spends maybe an hour at the most with his patients and doesn't really interact with them at all and totally depends on the cleanliness of that janitor. In any case, men were not eager to participate in housework. Still, the average male does less housework than his fully employed wife if he is unemployed. And so huge domestic conflicts started. The divorce, which was about one, well, it's 25% in 1965, is now at least 50%. Because increasingly, as people separate, if they don't have assets or children to fight over, or they don't want to fight about the children and agree among, among themselves, they don't bring an expensive legal system into their separations and divorces. So the minimum of divorce went to 50%, and actually it's about 60% of marriages that dissolve. So that doubled as women became less satisfied with doing two jobs, one for men and children and the other in paid labor for the boss. And gender began to shift. And as we've seen in the retrograde movement of men's rights, which is different from father's rights, I should differentiate that. Father's rights defends the right of fathers to not only pay for their children, but also spend time with them, have a right to them, do things with them, live with them, and so that in case of divorce or separation, whereas men's rights are, I have the right to do what I want and the kids are mine and you can do all the work and I can do what I want. A very different kind of message, more Rush Limbaugh type of message. At any rate, the household started to break up. So not only was the economic support withdrawn, but the basic organization of emotional support was, which was the family. And families as they were then, which was not necessarily the greatest, they might have seemed like a life sentence for many, but they were stable for most Americans. Now family life ended. Now, well, there are actually more children living with single women than there are children living with two married parents. It's a huge, huge shift. And so that there was 
a big depression on the side of particularly men as they lost their status as kings of the household served by women and of many women who were used to being taken care of and now we're not and now we're given two jobs and children who in this problem area were much more abandoned and neglected than they had been previously. So we have a collapse of the emotional support system as well as the economic support system then. Well, we have that again, this newest depression, and we have to remind ourselves that capitalism is as unstable as living with a borderline roommate up and down and up and down. So 2001, we had the dot-com crisis down. 2008, we had the mortgage crisis. They're all called this crisis or that crisis, not the capitalist crisis, but another one. Now we have a doozy of a depression. It's not just a downturn, it's a depression. 36 million Americans are unemployed as of the latest count, and they always undercount, and there are more and more all the time. Homelessness is skyrocketing. On an economic level, people are desperate. And we don't have the 80% guarantee of one salary that the other European countries have and Canada has, all those countries that have actually conquered COVID-19. So Americans are in terrible shape. On the other hand, they are now in mentally terrible shape. So they have a personal depression that goes with this economic depression. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, 50% of Americans have a mental health crisis as well as an economic crisis. The substance abuse and mental health hotline of the United States on their distress and disaster hotline has had an 891% increase in calls because people are desperate. That's partly because they are needing to shelter at home. They don't have their salaries. They don't have their jobs. They don't have their support systems. They don't have access to their friends. They don't have access to their extended families. And they're in mental trouble because their support systems are deeply challenged. And what are the signs of that mental, those mental problems? Well, extreme signs we could look at are Spikes in overdose deaths, which means a lot more opioid use. Spikes in wife abuse. Spikes in child battery. Spikes in child sexual abuse, as well as suicides, which are increasing, and general mental health breakdowns. Why would people be breaking down like this? Why? How come this has hit us so hard? Well, one reason is we don't have We have a very inadequate physical protection, and we don't have any mental health protection. We don't have even the inadequate funding and staffing for mental health facilities as we have for hospitals and clinics. And at the same time, we're under terrible conditions. And what those terrible conditions are is that people shelter in place. Now, sheltering in place means for children that there are fewer calls reporting child abuse because the people who used to call in and report it were the teachers, the school nurse, the community organization, the dancer, the dance class, whatever that the after-school program their kids are in. 
but there are a lot more hospitalizations of children who have been so badly battered that they're hospitalized. And in terms of child sex abuse, half of the kids who are calling in to the rape and incest network in the United States, Rain, are minors calling in, saying I'm, I'm being hurt and reporting that. So these are signs of deep, deep emotional trouble. And we don't really have that on our agenda to address this deep and terrible trouble. What we have is a profit healthcare system that we've talked about before. And with a profit healthcare system, there's no point in stockpiling supplies for an, a pandemic because you get more money turning over things and getting money for them than stockpiling them. That's why Katie Porter from California, Congresswoman from California, held up the receipts where Trump sold the equipment that was stockpiled to help us because it was in demand in the world because of the pandemic. That's what profit gets you. So we don't have the kind of protective equipment. The biggest spike is in, in suicides is in suicides among healthcare workers who are not protected and who, who are seeing horrendous things, who are seeing people close to death who can't say goodbye to their families, who are seeing people come in in utter distress, who are seeing parents who have utterly neglected their children to the point of death or abuse or actively abuse them, and who are not given proper protection. Nurses are using the same masks over and over again, which is why 9,000 of them have died. And doctors are working far beyond their own capacity, and retired doctors and dropouts from medical school are being invited back to heal the sick. That's very depressing. That's a way in which people say, oh my God, I'm not protected. I'm not protected if I get COVID, and I'm not protected if I get anything else that requires a hospital because the hospitals are jammed with COVID. What am I going to do? In addition, they don't feel protected because the United States alone amongst the countries that are advanced, whether they are Canada or Germany or Austria or Iceland or Denmark or Norway, or the countries in the, in the East, like Taiwan, right across from China, which has the world's highest population, or Singapore, they've all, they've gotten COVID deaths and COVID illnesses way down because they did what the World Health Organization told them to do, starting when this was announced by China in December 2019. If we had really insisted on shelter in place and then tested and tracked and treated people, we would have saved 54,000 deaths just since March 1st. But we didn't do anything like that. So people all over the United States are terrified because our government is not protecting us. In fact, our president is suggesting that we take hydrochloroquine like he does, even though he may be well lying about that too. All the research shows it causes death in people with heart problems and that it does nothing to cure COVID-19. And so we don't have leadership at the top. It's as though people are living with an abusive parent who demands total obedience and is enraged if he or she doesn't get it. And at the same time is doing contradictory, saying contradictory things, lying, 
demanding complete acquiescence and putting us in danger. And so people are regressing. And that's why there's so much violence and pain and acting out. We're abandoned. We're abandoned in a terribly dangerous time. You covered so much amazing stuff in there. I wanted to actually go back to some of what you were saying in the in the beginning, because I mean, chi- a lot of my own childhood stuff, childhood trauma, and my life story and my family history, I was born in 1985. Mm. And so everything you spoke about on the broader sociological and economic level about from the late 1970s, which is really close to when I was born and really close to when my parents, you know, my, when my mom gave birth to me, when all the um, the male jobs were mechanized, robotized, outsourced, and unions, even the whatever strength we had in the union movement back then was very much crushed by these what are often called neoliberal reforms that that came from that era. My dad was a printer. Well, he was in the Marines for a short time, and then he came out and he became a a printer, like with printing presses. But around that time, um, Kinko's popped up, which became the sort of like like the Walmart of or McDonald's of printing. Yeah. And so he and a lot of other men who had been trained to use printing presses. He showed me one time when I was a kid, there were these enormous machines and you had to, um, the, everyone that ran the machines had to mechanically understand them to some degree because they had to make repairs or if something got jammed, they had to tinker with it and fix it. So he was very well trained in being able to use a printing press. And there were these big factories where a lot of mainly men would be working in these printing presses. So he's one of many men who just kind of lost their jobs. The jobs started drying up from the processes you're talking about. I'll also just self-disclose, I did grow up in a domestic violence family. There's, you know, he pretty, pretty nasty guy. And then my mom had to raise me in Section 8 housing on her own. And in my clinical training program, when I think about the way we conceptualize as therapists, family dynamics, family history, you know, you can do a genogram and you can try to map out intergenerational dynamics that have to do with either abuse or substance abuse or, um, I don't know, communication styles or the way different traumas have affected people, something that was completely left out within my training program was stuff like this. Because, yeah, me too. Right? Because what are the larger social, political, and economic forces that cause trauma, cause disruptions in families that then give rise to the kinds of things that you just talked about, which is if, if masculine identity is rooted largely in your ability to be a good worker and be proud of your work in a dignified kind of manner. You're this breadwinner kind of person. And if that job is taken away from you by larger political forces, by capitalists saying it's a lot cheaper to just build robots to do the work or to outsource the labor to countries where there's no labor laws and we can pay them a penny a day or whatever, how does that impact the the male um, psyche? And then mm-hmm. What what are the consequences as a result? And this, I don't think this should justify things like excessive substance abuse or use of violence within families by men, obviously. But I think the way masculinity is constructed as it is right now is that that's usually what we're going to see, right? If you yeah. you take take away the foundation of what the identity is constructed out of, and you don't really have anything, you don't have a replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, because when this happened, nobody in our government or within the economic system said to all the men that lost their jobs, well, here's a better way of being a man. You don't have to right. have a job. You don't have to provide for your family. Do this thing instead. Nobody said that. They just yep. kind of 
pulled the rug out from under them. So, you know, I'm, I was one of the many babies from that era who um, got the brunt of the, the violence and family disruptions that capitalism had caused during that time. Yes. Now, go ahead. That you're illustrating it with your life. Because that makes it real. It's not just statistics. It's our lives. Right. It's not just conceptual. And I think a lot of people could probably relate to this. And they probably haven't, you know, people probably in their like 30s or so around my age grew up during this time. And just like me, they were kids. So they didn't they weren't looking around saying, oh, what are those policies Reagan is enacting by, with the stroke of the pen? We're just you're, you're a little kid. So all you're seeing is that your parents are so extraordinarily stressed out because of economic issues that you don't understand and you're not going to understand probably for at least a couple decades, if ever. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the the other bizarre thing that ended up happening is that those of us that went into the field of psychology to be able to help other people, it was never explained to us. So, hey, this is why uh, people's mental health is so bad. And this is why they need so much help. Mm -hmm. It's because it's almost like somebody pressed a button and they ca caused all this weird stuff to happen that caused massive levels of depression and anxiety and exacerbation of more severe mental health symptoms. I mean, even if you have, um, you know, milder forms of, say, bipolar disorder aren't that hard to manage, even without medication. Well, I shouldn't go so far as to say that. But these kinds of stressors really exacerbate more serious mental health conditions as well. Yes, absolutely. So sometimes I think <clears throat> we don't realize, but when we go into the mental health field, oftentimes we're just sort of this... Uh, a very kind of small, somewhat weak army of people that try to go in and do damage control and put yeah. band-aids on <laughs> larger social issues. Right. And obvi obviously, we do help. It's, I don't yeah. think anyone anyone yeah. would question that. But there's just that larger, the bigger picture that you're you just laid out so beautifully over the last you know 50 or so years. Yeah, I think that's so that's so important. You know, one of the outgrowths of this is the mass murders that happen in the United States every yeah. week by men. Yeah. And they began in the 1980s in the post office. That's why that expression, oh, there's going oh, post right. office, happened. Mm. And that was under Reagan's crunching down on the postal workers, which were and are the biggest union in the United States, 600,000 people, that because instead of hiring people to be supervisors that had been doing other jobs within the postal service and understood the supervisors, they hired business graduates who saw the postal workers as opponents and pushed them beyond durability. Mm. And their whole way of proceeding in the post office was smashed and people broke under those conditions. And then also Reagan did break the strike that was a very pivotal strike of the air traffic controllers. Mm -hmm. And so all, all these men who were used to well-paid union jobs lost them. And even though 35% were in unions then, the fact that there were unions made everyone else have a better salary and more security. Right. There's a lot of studies on that. That if Because if you think from an industrial level, let's just say... Uh, I don't know, baristas, like coffee shop, people that pour your coffee, even if only 35% of that whole industry is unionized, that means that you've created a, a, a competitive wage for the rest of the entire industry so that it's if the industry wants to pay their workers 10 bucks a wage, I'm just kind of saying this for listeners because a lot of people don't know this. Let's say the, they, they want to have it be 10 bucks, 
but the 35% of the unionized coffee shop workers, they've bumped it up to 15. Now, what happens is the rest of that industry, all those workers are saying, hey, we want to go over to the union shops. And right. their, bo their bosses say, well, we don't want to lose them to the union shops. So then they have to they have to up the pay or the benefits or whatever. They have to actually make it more competitive. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, I've heard people say this about unions where they say, oh, well, there's there's all this bureaucracy and there's you know they they'll list kind of all the problems with unions and there are a lot of problems with the unions but 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 they'll 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 cite these kind of like weird reasoning that's divorced from the reality which is that when you lack strong unions on an industrial or just a, a total societal level wages get depressed overall benefits get depressed overall working conditions get depressed overall it's another like rug pulled out from under our feet thing we didn't realize was happening or a lot of people probably during that time realized it was happening but the forces behind it were, were too strong for folks to be able to stop it. And my understanding from the, the air traffic controller strikes from I've just watched like videos on this because I I was either not born or just a baby at the time was that these were really massive strikes. This were I mean, weren't these like thousands of, of yes. workers across the entire industry? Yep. So so something that was really terrifying when I first learned about this, you know, decades later is, man, I, I don't know what, what else they could have done because they. They used what union organizers will call the strike weapon, which is like the biggest weapon you bring out when you're in a union. You say, look, the employers are we've tried in good faith over and over and over again to negotiate uh, to get a better contract. And they say no and no and no. Then you go on strike. And if you can get a strike across an entire industry or close to an entire industry in somewhere like a 90 to 95 percent majority of people going on strike, there's so much risk in that. And if that doesn't work, if you all get fired, like as Reagan did, of just firing everybody and then just re, um, I don't even, I don't understand how they even did that because they must have just reconstructed the industry from scratch or something. I don't know. That sends a message to the rest of the working world saying, we don't even care if you've unionized, we're just going to fire all of you anyway. And, you know, the, the power that you think you have through unions and all these contracts, we're just going to fire you anyway. Right. So I could see how that was terribly depressing. And also we have right. to remember that when during the McCarthy era, the um, unions throughout the communists, socialists and leftists from their unions, those people were the spark of the unions. They believed in worker power and they became much more pork chop unions and they didn't have the militancy. Of course, they could should have called a general strike. In France, which has very powerful unions where no union president is allowed to be paid or no one is allowed to be paid more than the highest paid worker in their union. Right. And where they are organized according to the communist trade unions, the socialist trade unions, the Christian democratic mm. trade unions, they're very political. When the subway workers go on strike, so do the gas workers, and the gas is turned off, and so do the phone workers. There's a kind of solidarity of workers which was considered communist and was smashed during the 50s. And so when they fired all the air traffic controllers, there wasn't a general strike across this nation. Even when they forced federal workers to work without being paid, Sarah Nelson who is running for the AFL-CIO president now, the head of the flight attendants union, called for a general strike. Mm. But the old leaders wouldn't go for it. So that people then were defeated. It wasn't as if, if everyone went out, if there was a general strike, 
and the gas was turned off and the electricity was turned off and the subways and the buses stopped, they would have won. But we didn't have that solidarity because they crushed the left in the union movement. Mm. And that was terrible. That was tragic. What we're talking about is a series of blows to American working people. And then they ideologically came in and said that the problems you have are because of the government, mm-hmm. not because of the corporations, because the corporations were the problem during the New Deal. Big government, which was, by the way, the New Deal, mm-hmm. is bad. And people fell for it. The media sure did. Well, and they kind of still are. There's so many people you'll talk to today, and you don't have to be like a hardcore conservative or libertarian or whatever. You can just sort of be an average, I don't know, kind of moderate, centrist kind of, you know, pretty apolitical kind of ordinary person. And, you know, I mean, most people I know don't know the names of their the, the mayor of their city or, you know, city council members or county supervisors. I mean, where I live, well, where everybody lives, there's usually multiple layers of governance. There's not just the president. There's not just the governor of your state. There's, you know, members of governance like all over the place. And most people I know, I think just think of it as sort of an inconvenience and it's annoying. You know, there's like the word bureaucracy is just like this negative, like oh, there's these layers of people that have to stamp a form and, and approve something and then it has to get sent to a committee. And, and the thing is, that is kind of annoying. I mean, I get it. Like we've all, you know, stood in line at the DMV and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is that one of the reasons that government sucks so much now is because the funding has been gutted so extremely that everything on the smaller scale of governance that we see within cities and, and counties and a lot of states is that the shift from the Reagan era to now made it so that all the basic services and all the stuff that the the bureaucrats would supposedly be, you know, if they could run them well, so much of the funding was was pulled out because of this ideological shift. Well, and saying, it still is. Exactly. I mean, the, the marginal tax rates went from, I mean, from FDR's time to, I think, like, what, the mid to late 70s or early 70s? It was in the 90 percentile, right? And now we're down to... Tax shelters and no taxes. I think they're under 50 percent. I, I should probably look that up, but... 35 percent, and it's 40 percent for bonuses and so on. But That's we right. okay. remember that there's billions of dollars in offshore accounts and places like the Canary Islands and, you know, who obviously if the U.S. government decided they were going to nationalize that money, Canary Islands wouldn't fight the U.S., you know, mm-hmm. silly. So yeah. that they're allowed to, to evade taxes. Yeah. And they changed the inheritance tax. So now you can inherit up to $11 million and not pay tax on it. And I, I want to maybe just to zoom out for our listeners a bit, too. The reason we're talking about this stuff that we we went on what probably seems like a tangent into like unions and yes. and that that history over last, the last 50 years, it's touching on what Harriet beautifully laid out in the, the first half of this, which is that the economic ebbs and flows under capitalism and the kind of trickle down effects on our families and on rates of child abuse and suicides and uh, domestic abuse and all those things, they're extreme. They're so interconnected that you just, you can't separate them. We can't just be looking at rates of say depression, anxiety, substance abuse, abuse of uh, Oxycontin or other like prescription drugs. Or um, I, I think the emphasis, even right now, I saw that this month is considered mental health awareness month or might be mental health awareness week. I, I, I only, you know, I didn't do a full comprehensive review of every source online that's talking about this stuff. But 
for the most part, they're just talking about mental health as if it's happening in a vacuum, like as if it's just kind of in your head. And at most, they'll sometimes emphasize like, oh, well, you know, check in with the people around you, make sure they're doing okay. And like, yes, of course, like, let's check in with each other. Let's hold space and be empathic and compassionate and good active listeners and all that kind of stuff. I almost think that should just like be a basic, like, if you want to like, be a good person and be aligned with your values as, as wanting to be a kind of humanitarian of some sort, just, just do those things anyway. But when we're talking about the prevalence and the severity of mental health issues, and as they increase over decades of time, you have to start asking questions as to why that's occurring. And it's not like our, it's not like our genes are changing or something, or, or that somehow like our brains are just strangely getting wired differently what Harry and I are saying is that there are largely economic and political forces that are, I don't want to say causing, as if these things cause mental illness, but they, at, at the very least, they exacerbate our stress to the point where it makes our mental wellness far, far worse. And so the treatment shouldn't just be in the arena of mental health, the kind of stuff that Harry and I do for a living. It should be political activity. Ordinary people, yeah, us getting connected with each other, but connected in a political way as well. We we need to think about, you know, it'll sound like a generic leftist, but um, mass mobilizations, right? We need like a large scale collective effort to change things, which is not something that you can do within a therapist office. So we do need to think more broadly. We do, because also each thing in our society and in our lives shapes and is shaped by the others. So as we, you know, one of the things that Max and I do is we empower people to have much more knowledge of themselves, control of themselves, learn how to take care of themselves, learn how to hold on to their inner strength. But also all those things are always being shaped by the externals. Mm -hmm. If you're living on the street, you can't be thinking too highly of yourself. You're all dirty. You're supposed to stay safe. You're supposed to shelter in place and wash your hands and you don't have a home and you don't have a sink and you're gone. It's utterly demoralizing and being fired and unable to find a job like no one wants you and you keep applying and they're all saying, I don't want you. Mm -hmm. That is not good for self-esteem. So although Max and I help people a lot and we help empower people, one of the ways we can help them is to help them understand it's not just them. Mm. That they are fighting against very frightening forces and they need that fight and they need that strength. But it's not because there's something so inferior about them. There's mm. something wrong outside and they have to understand it to empower themselves. And that's emotional. And Join an organization. That's another message I have to listeners. Join an organization. Uh, I mean, my my preferences. I, there's a lot of them out there, but you know, DSA, IWW. This isn't a command to anybody. You don't have to. But I think that's that's my interpretation of what Harriet's saying when she's saying saying get connected. You know, I think if we only think within the the unit of say um, the family, right? Uh, you know, get connected with your family members. Great who shouldn't be connected to their family members. Having good family relations is is pretty key to, I think, having just a you know normal um, 
healthy sense of mental health, you know, if you have a traditional kind of family, you know, a lot of us have more what we call like a, a chosen family, like our, our friends are our families. And, you know, this is something talked about in like the LGBT community a lot more because of the rampant homophobia, transphobia, and a lot of traditional families that you have to go and find a community that accepts you. So in that sense, sure, stay connected um, with family and loved ones and friends. But if we're to solve these larger problems, we have to get connected far beyond that. Yes, we do. And even, look, I think connection is important no matter what you're connected to. If you're connected to people who like to knit together on uh, the internet, that's certainly better than not being connected because we need each other. We're herd animals, human beings. Mm-hmm. And we're not the strongest, the smartest, and we're the smartest, but we're not the strongest, the swiftest, the best hearing, best sighted animals, but we can cooperate and that, and we have to. We're not going off into this because we prefer economics. We're therapists. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good reminder. We, yeah, that's... <laughs> Looking at what shapes our mental health or mental illness, the externals that shape us, which are sadly neglected in our field. I want to invite listeners to make suggestions about different topics you might want us to cover. Um, This is our fourth episode, and we plan on continuing to make more episodes. And if anybody has ideas or questions about you know, topics. So in the first half here, Harriet covered so much ground. I I think that we could even take tiny chunks of those and we could have entire episodes and conversations just on those things. And there are probably an infinite, infinite number of other topics we could be covering. And we would like to hear from you all. The re- emails we've been receiving are great so far. Terrific. Um, yeah, they've been really great. So please sending in those emails and let us know what you think about the podcast. That would be so valuable. Also, you know, we're talking into the void. So we're trying to reach you. So if you reach back, we really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all. Okay. Uh, See you guys all next time. See you next time. (laughs) Bye.